Welcome back to the next part of this Truth and Rhythm episode. Be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. Also become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you so much for your interest and support. Enjoy. Sukiyaki would not have been released without George Duke. Let's just put it that way. It would not have been recorded in the studio, I should say without George. How, how did he guide you on that one in particular? Well, he didn't. George, I had, I had recorded Sukiyaki. I've been wanting to do Sukiyaki, you know, back when they burned the records and I'm trying to think of another song that we can do. And then I heard that Linda Ronstadt version of Ooh Baby Baby. And I said, oh, we should do something different like that. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> I saw that Linda Ronstadt version of Ooh Baby Baby. I said, we should do something unique like that. You know, we need to go do a ballad. And immediately I thought of the song Sukiyaki, but the song I thought of was because I used to do that as a child. I used to perform that in my backyard with my robe on, pretending I'm dancing. So I knew about that song. I said, if we slow it down and make it a, a ballad because the melody is so beautiful. So I called my publisher in Japan. I said, get me in touch with the writer. I need permission to do this because I don't want to do a, a, um, a translation. Because at first I asked for translations. They gave me three different translations. The first one was I look up to keep my tears from falling down in reference to a death march. Someone was on his way to be executed. The other interpretation was the same thing, looking up to keep my tears from falling down, dealing with uh, just life in general. Someone was just feeling depressed about their life. The other one, looking up to keep my tears from falling down, was a broken-hearted love story. So I chose that one. I said, I'm going to write about love. I'm going to write about a broken heart. And so that's how I started that. So when I go, I called uh, Dr. Cecil Hale over at that time, who was in the, in the uh, A&R department. I said, look, he came to my house. Said, you got to hear this. I, I got this idea to do the song, Sukiyaki. And he said, no, Black people want to hear Japanese music. I forbid you to do that. And I said, so you're under the impression that all black people only like what you like? And if you recall, Taste the Honey has more than a black following. You know, we have pop, we have Asia, we have Africa, we have a lot of different people that have bought our records around the world. He said, absolutely not. Now, that's not a good thing to say to a woman that knows what she wants. And so I presented it to George, and George said, hmm. I'm do sukiyaki. I don't know about that. So George started doing this little up-tempo thing. And I said, no, no, George. It's going to be a love ballad. It's going to be like this, a love ballad. And so he said, you're not taking no for an answer? I said, nope. He said, okay, let's just try it. 
let's just try and see what happens. Try it and see what happens. So when we did the, the arrangement, the only thing different that George wanted me to do that I said, okay, we're going to sing it your way. And then I'm going to sing it the way I hear it. He said, okay, okay, I'll sing. Because he wanted me to sing, it's all the God, oh, full voice, right? And I said, no, I'm going to sing it sweet, George. And so we were in his house at the time. So I, uh, I sang the vocal. He said, you know what you're doing. You know what you, because I knew what I heard. I knew the record that I was hearing in my head. But had George Duke told me no, I mean, we would have got it recorded most likely because he's such a kind guy. But he called in Claire Fisher. He added some class, some string jazz, up a couple of those simple triad chords, major seven, little minor ninth with the raise 14. <laughs> he was, you know, and it was simple. And I have to tell you, I was so nervous playing bass on that song because in the room was Roland Batista, who played with Earth, Wind, and Fire, George Duke. Oh, I knew he was going to slip my mind, the drummer, and I know him too, rest in peace. But anyway, all these great musicians, studio musicians, and I had to play with them. I was scared, but it worked out. I remember, George, they do that again. I said, okay. So it was just the way it happened. It would not have happened without George agreeing to just, you know, let me try it, George. Let's just see how it works. And he did because Capitol was saying no, 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 no. And even after it was recorded on the record, they didn't want to release it. I went through hell with that. I'll tell you that story somewhere along the way. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, it's such an unlikely path, you know, to making a hit with that one. Yeah. And, and the truth of the matter is that I tried to get it to be the first single. It would have sold the album. Everyone would have been paid. I tried to make it the second single. Radio forced it off to be a single. Radio all across the country just started playing it. And I had gone into the record company with my promotional ideas. You know, I, I'm an arts and crafts kind of girl. I used to work in a sewing factory from the time I was 12 till I was 16. I got a whole lot of other stuff that I do. So I created all of these promotional merchandise items. I had to the record with the kimono. I wanted to take the kimono. We had a fan-shaped record. I said, let's do a fan-shaped record. Let's give away some fans. Let's do this. And when I first presented it to them back before it was going to be a single, they told me no to all of them. And then I got a call from Dennis White, who at the time was the head of marketing. And he said, Janice, remember those ideas you brought in here about six months ago? I said, he said bring them back. <laughs> so I go back with a little drawing of a fan-shaped record. You know, those Japanese fans, because by then I'm dancing, I'm prepared to do this, the, the, the Honbuyo live. And then they did all three of them. They did all three of them when they finally put it out as a single. But had it not been for folks like you pulling it off of the record, Sukiyaki would have never happened. Had it not been for George Duke taking the risk, taking the risk with me on something just, I mean, Sukiyaki's just left field, right? It's totally out of the box. But I knew that after seeing them burn those records, the taste of honey needed a ballot. Because <laughs> at that time, anything up-tempo was considered disco. It didn't have to be disco. disco. It could have been a funk. It could have been R&B. But if it's up-tempo, folks were classifying everything disco. There are R&B acts that were classified disco that was never disco. Absolutely. Even funk, which is a love right. of mine, you know, was right. pigeonholed into that. 
Right, everything was. Because, you know, that's what they do. They want to give you titles. Do you like our music? How about just let it be great music? So, But I knew how the industry works, and I knew we needed a, sing- a, a ballad. So, and I was trying to be different. You know, it's just something unheard of. Yeah. Well, it definitely showed a range, you know? Well, yeah, the showgirl. See, that's the showgirl, right? That's the showgirl in me. want to, you know, do some dancing. Do, you know, I studied Nihon Buyu for 30 years. Mm. You know, I don't just uh, do it. I mean, I live it. Mm-hmm. And there were great up-tempo songs in there, too. I mean, Ain't Nothing But a Party really got that record off to a great start. And um, yeah. Rescue Me, too, was a nice... Um, to me, it reminded me a little bit of like an emotions kind of track, you know, um, mm-hmm. you know, but real catchy. And I actually saw the clip uh, recently of you guys doing that on Soul Train. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Soul Train. Good old Soul Train. Yeah, that was a fun record to do. Um, you know, that's crazy because um, Roland Batista and Byron were in the studio and they were jamming. And I heard this jam that they were jamming to. And I said, let me get my recorder out. I'm going to record you guys. I said, I'm going to take this home and write a song for this. And I said, okay. So I go home that night. <clears throat> I had it on my cassette. I transferred over to my quarter inch uh, reel to reel. And then I get my razor, my, my uh, razor blade out. Because back then we would edit. Guys, there was no digital editing. You could not see. You had to go by your ears. So I'm splicing the tape. I'm back and forth. Okay, I don't want to take that part there and put that part there. And like, by the time I took that back the next day, I had recorded it. Onto, I think it was, I had a, um, I think it was the quarter inch reel to reel that I had then because I had an ass edge too, but I recorded it on that. I changed the verse. The part that they thought would be the verse became my hook. And I had added the intro. Ding, 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 ding. So I just, he said, that's not the song. I said, if you want credit for it, you better claim it. That's the same song. <laughs> so that's how that happened. It's like one of those overnight things. And ain't nothing but a party. I had a great fun writing that with George. Yeah, it was just, George is just incredible. Yeah, incredible. that that one definitely has his sort of production sound. All over it. Yeah. All over it. Um, a few songs on there do, like Say That You Stay, that's George. I was going to mention that one next. Yeah, that's yeah. That, that's one of the funkier ones for sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one too. Um, so Jane, George, I gotta tell you, George taught us Hazel and I a couple of techniques because you know, to get to some of those higher notes on say that you'll stay, we had he had us standing on a chair, leaning forward with the mic way up in the air so that we would not be out of tune. <laughs> this is before, um, what do they call it? Auto tune. No, none of the stuff was out of tune. So you may hear a few vocals on a few of the records from the old folks, a little slightly out of tune, but the feeling's there. So that's part of what gives it that special extra something in a lot yeah, of cases. I just, wish we, I just wish we had thought the videotape back in those days. Can you imagine having all that kind of footage from being in the studio with George, man? The photo or something. But okay, I got them right here. Yeah. No, I wish we had so much footage from from back in the day for sure um so what were some of the uh you you mentioned going out with the commodores and and uh, confunction early on what were a couple of the the tours uh that really just were unforgettable for you and and why well 
I think the, the Commodore was the, the biggest tour that we went on. And that was unforgettable because there was so much camaraderie and, and love there between Confunction, LTD, and A Taste of Honey, and, and uh, the Commodores, because I knew them before we went on tour. I've been knowing them since 76, and the record came out in 78. So it was like, I don't know, like a reunion kind of thing, you know, until we got put off the tour. <laughs> but that was, that was a great tour. We loved that. We thought we were, when you went on tour, you stayed on the whole tour. We didn't realize they bring different acts in different places and end up going on tour. We won tour with Maze and some other people. That was great too. But I mean, just great being on the road, making a living, doing what you love to do. That's about the best thing. Meeting a lot of different people, performing on a lot of different stages was, you know, really incredible. We performed at Disneyland and Disney World. It was incredible to see a sea of people come running in when they opened those gates. We're peeking out and there's just like this sea of people just come running in. It's like, and they're there to see us. How is that possible? How could we be that fortunate, that blessed that all these people, and not only that, it's the most amazing feeling to be on stage and have everyone in the audience singing the lyrics that you wrote. I mean, it just brings tears to my eyes. How could this be? How could I be this fortunate that I've touched this many people that they know every lyric? Yeah. Sorry, and especially too, emotional. And even too, when you go sometimes to foreign countries and they know it in English. Yes, they yeah. do. They know everything in English. They, yeah. they don't, they don't sing it in their, excuse me. They do know it in English. They don't sing it in their own language. They sing the words that you, that you've done. So it's amazing. It's simply amazing. You know, we go to foreign countries and we're trying to think of learn, how you doing? A good afternoon, a good evening, or thanks for coming out in their foreign language. All you need to do is speak English. <laughs> That's what they want to hear. What was there one show in particular that just was a memory, um, whether something funny happened or maybe you met someone that was a thrill, or maybe you know, your bass uh, was missing, or I don't know, it could be anything, but is there something that just stands out? Well, I will tell you the one that stands out for all the wrong reasons, okay? <laughs> right here in Los Angeles, we performed at Disneyland. Now we're playing at home. And on this date, um, Hazel and I just got these new outfits. Hazel's got this black sequence over top that kind of hangs low behind her butt and she's got pants on. <clears throat> and I always like to wear dresses, right? So I've got my new sequence dress on, it's got a little lining underneath it and you can see through the chiffon sequence and so anyway we're doing the show and hazel goes to lift her foot up to do part of the routine and we've never worn these before and her heel gets caught in her top and she falls down she hits her butt hits the stage and i'm saying oh my god and it's time for me to sing and so I kind of strode over there too. I said, you better play the hell out of that guitar. I'm not going to verse so low. So she's on the ground and she's playing. And so then I go to the next verse and then it comes to a, another time where Hazel and I switch sides of the stage and she goes to put her, and she falls again. And the, the, the texts come out one on each side and just fix her up. And my heart is sinking. I'm feeling so bad. Oh my God, that's humiliating. Oh my God. So long story short, she ended up falling three times in one show. 
but flat on her back, not for didn't get hurt. Guys come up, made a part of the show. And every time I said, every time she's on the ground, I didn't have to walk over there too. I just play that guitar, girl. And so the artist is going crazy. She's down on the butt playing it. And one time she was on her knees or whatever. So it was great. So we get up to the dressing room and I'm telling her, I'm trying to console her. I said, Hazel, I'm so sorry. I feel so bad. I'm so sorry that happened, Hazel. And then I look into the mirror and I see that my underslip had worked all the way over and my boob is stuck to the see-through chiffon with the sequence on the tip. You know? <laughs> my boob is exposed. Oh, and I'm thinking, forget the fall. I would have rather fallen, right? I would have rather fallen. So I'm thinking, how long has it been like this? Oh my God. And so one of my friends came up to the, uh, came up to the dressing room and she said, it's been like that since the third song. <laughs> and I said, why didn't anybody tell me? She said, well, I was trying to get a note to you. I'm passing the note, but it was so crowded. She couldn't get up there. And so I said, oh Lord, oh Lord, oh Lord. So trust me, y'all check that footage. You've got some beautiful photos and in one of those photos is my left boob. <laughs> and I know this. Because later that week, after the performance, we had an interview with Soul Magazine that used to be popular back in the day. And the guy was there taking photos and so forth. So I went up to him and I said, can I see your slides from the show? That's the one particular one I'm looking for. And he probably already knew. He probably already had a copy of it. So I'm going through the slides and sure enough, there it is. I'm like, it's a great shot. I'm like, and this is out, my beads are glistening. And she had a soft lens. It was a beautiful shot, but there's that boob. Man, man, <laughs> I would have rather fallen. This is way before it was okay to have your boobs out. It's way before ladies were wearing underwears, outer clothing, right? This was back in the 70s, not the 80s and 90s, not the Madonna days, okay? <laughs> you can't have your boob out. <laughs> we don't, that's unacceptable. So and at Disneyland, had, no less, too with all the children <laughs> and everyone I know I'm from LA. I went to school all over LA. Right? Yeah. So, and so I put this picture up cause I'm going to put it away somewhere. I have been carrying around boxes from that time, trying to find that picture. I don't know where it is. I said, no, you got to bring that box. It's like four boxes. Those boxes must come wherever I go. <laughs> I have to go through it. So much stuff and <laughs> find that one photo. I have yet to find it. What was that, that after? That was, was memorable. That's incredible. <laughs> what, what, That's was 1978. That? So after only the first record was out at that time. After the boogie was the only that was the hottest thing rolling. <laughs> that was a, that was the summer of 1978. Boogie came out in April, so we were you know we were hot stuff then. Like oh, my maybe, out. maybe you influenced Janet Jackson years later in the Super Bowl. <laughs> <right>? Nah. <laughs> No, nah, but I was thinking about that when I was telling you the story that is, you know, and then please, I'm, I'm not even going to comment on that one. I, I'm looking forward to hear her story and hear the truth on that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Thanks for sharing that. That's hilarious <laughs> and mortifying <laughs> and everything. <laughs> you know, it's just one of those things that happens. I'm wondering if the crowd thought that her falling down was part of the act at some point, though, you know, if it happened three Maybe times. Maybe the first or second time, but by the third time, I don't think, but it became part of the act 
because the, the response was so great that we had her fall down, but we had her fall on her knees, not her butt. Mm. So every show after that, she had three solos on Boogie. I don't know if it was the last solo we'd ever go to her knees, you know. And I'd go over there, play that thing, girl, play that thing. You know, we made it part of the show. <laughs> yeah, wow. that was, uh, I mean, there's a story worse than that, but I'm going to save that for my book. <laughs> fair, fair enough. We'll look forward to that. You won't believe it. That's all I would say. Did did um so did Sukiyaki um how did that impact you know your next record? Um did you seek to sort of repeat the success or formula of that from that point? No, we didn't, but other people did. Uh that's why we have I'll try something new on the next album. And that was an Al McKay idea. In fact, um God, what was Smokey's producer's name before that? We met with him to possibly do that uh, ladies of the 80s lp before it was recorded uh but he produced Smokey robinson i can't think of his name he's produced i think a quiet storm album this is his name but anyway he had suggested i'll try something new and we ended up not working with him and we never shared that information with al mckay and then al mckay suggested so we ended up doing it and i'm sure to this day that guy thinks he got that idea from him we did not you guys both had the same great idea at the same time. And it's so funny. I'm going to tell you something about it. I'll try something new. When I try something new was released, Larkin Arnold was releasing It's Going to Take a Miracle by Denise Williams. Larkin called me on the phone and he said, your song should be number one. But watch me make, push Denise Williams past you. I said, Larkin, that's cold. Why would you call me and tell me that? Call the company and tell them what to do to how to make it happen. And it's not my job. But he was messing with me, right? But that's what he said. It's sure enough. Then we went to number six, I think. And she went to number, oh, we went to number nine or something. Nine. I don't know, 13, something. Nine, and I think, number nine. What, what, what was the other? I think she was number six or something like that. So, like, okay. So we've got all these little side jokes and things going on behind the scene that people don't realize. It's going like, I, I bet you I'm going to make it. The, Denise Williams, it's going to be bigger than yours. And yours is a better record. I said, did she know you said that? <laughs> That's interesting, too, because she used to work with Al McKay, too, back in the 70s. So they kind of, there's some crossover there with her uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire uh, relationship. Very um, cool. How did you get Al McKay assigned to your project? Well, you know, you just never know where and how you're going to meet someone. There's a pretty popular Thai food restaurant on Coenga and Sunset called Chandors. At least it used to be there in the 70s. And I went in there and Al McKay was in there with his son. And that's how we met. And he said, I got a song for you guys. And it was a song, Sayonara, the one that Hazel sang. And I said, okay, great. Well, let's hear it. And that's just how it started. Next thing you know, he ended up producing the record. Mm. Met him at, at Chandor's Thai food restaurant in Hollywood, California. That's how we met. Next thing you know, he's producing. How, how was he to work with? Next question. <laughs> I heard he's kind of a mercurial guy, if that's the right term. But um... Well, you know, I don't know. I think that Al learned some things from early on in his career that were not cool. I guess that's because that's the way he was treated. Now, as far as writing together, Al McKay and I are magic. I mean, he gave me a piece of a track to a song that ended up being called uh, We've Got the Groove, um, Never Go Wrong, 
And what's the other one on there? You're looking at it. Diamond Reel. Diamond Reel. Yeah, gave funky. me three, three different just ideas of a song. I went home that night. I came back. I finished all three of them and recorded them because I didn't sleep back then. I was younger then. You know, I was, hey, check this out. So I came back. He said, you did all three in one night. I said, I was motivated. It doesn't happen all the time. But when you're motivated like that and you know you have to get up in the morning, you don't go to bed. You stay up and do the creative thing. You can't say, well, I'll do it in the morning because in the morning that thought and that creative energy may not be there. I did all three of those songs in one night and took them back to Al, lyrics, melody, everything. <laughs> he was stunned. But no, Al was cool. Al, you know, Al, Al's just different. I mean, after coming from George Duke, it's just different. I guess the question should be, would you like to do that again? We Doesn't can write sound like together. It. We'll, well write you together, know, but... we could write together anytime, but you know, he's just got a different way of doing stuff and it didn't really work that well. Hmm. Lies uh, struck me as sort of like a Rick James style funk track. Yeah, that's a Hazel song. Hazel will come either Hazel would either come really funky or really pop, rock. So that was a Hazel song. That was that was based on a, a story of someone telling some lies. You know, a lot of times we write about our personal experiences. Lies, <laughs> lies. Yeah, that was a cool song. That's very cool. Yeah. Um, and you had the Commodore's connection on that one because Ronald Lapreed was involved. Yeah, yeah. That that's the song. Well, he wasn't involved. Was he in Lies? Yeah, he was on no, Lies. No, yeah, Midnight Snack and uh, Leaving Midnight tomorrow. Snack in the Sack. Yeah, Midnight Snack in the Sack. See, there's an out. Al- there's an unreleased album that Capital has. That song came from there. And Ronald Lapreed had worked with us on a couple of songs. That and that crazy song. I don't know why we put on there Leaving Tomorrow, but I guess it was just a funny thing to do. Um, but he produced, co-produced those with us, but that album never came out. So we just took a couple of those songs and put it on the LaPrade album. I mean, on the, um, Al McKay album. Midnight Snack, I would say might be a Taste of Honey's funkiest track. Let me tell you why we did Midnight Snack in the first place. Capitol Records said to us, we don't know where to put you. Are you funk? Are you R&B? Are you pop? What are you? You're not black enough. Like, oh, man. Could that be because I went to Catholic school? Because I didn't go to that sanctified church. You know, we sing melodies, pretty melodies in Latin. You know, they're not funky enough. I said, okay, we're going to give them something so black, they'll never say that to us again. So there was a pizza parlor <laughs> that in Lamberg Park down on Crenshaw across from Maverick's Flat. And one of the guys in there, a couple of guys in there were some of the writers on that song and so forth. And so that was the first rap record. We're going to, you know, we're not black enough. We're going to do some hip hop for you. Or what did they call it back then? Did they call it rap? It was, you know, um, yeah, it was rap. woke up one morning, 12 o'clock. I wasn't that hungry. My body was hot. So I, I, I picked up the phone and I called this guy. I know what he said. Come on by. Before I knew it, I was in his house. I said, hi. You know, midnight snack in the sack. I love playing that song. That's a fuck. <laughs> oh, I love that song. Yes. But it scared the heck out of Capitol. I said, okay, put that one out. We're not black enough. Put that out. Be bold. Nah. Too bold. Too black. It's like um, the, the funkiest Commodore sound meets the Brides of Funkenstein on that one. I mean. 
I know. That should have shocked everyone, right? When you, yeah. when you heard that, you said, this can't be a taste of honey. This can't be. Yes, it is. We do a variety of music. We put pull from everything we have. Hazel's input, my input, you know, just put it together. It was great. Hazel and I used to write some really great songs together. I've got to find some of the ones that weren't released. Because we did the songs like, I love you, this love of ours, you know, that kind of stuff. It's kind of soft rock jazzy kind of stuff. Like Speaking of funk, though, and that was 1982, I think. And I know um, Capital in 82 signed George Clinton. Did, did you guys cross paths ever with uh, George Clinton? Never did. No. Never did. Never uh, did. What about Frankie Beverly? Or um... Yeah, we worked with Frankie Beverly a few times. We worked with Frankie Beverly. Yeah, we did on the road. In fact, one of the videos that Capital did that also is not released, one of the live videos, uh, in New Orleans, we worked with Frankie, and maybe a couple of other places, too. He's funky. Yeah, great, great group. And they put out a live at New Orleans record, actually. So That's where the video was, and that's where it was, yeah. Okay. That's where we worked with him. We were, we were opening for him. Mm, wow, what a show. Yeah. So what, what happened then? Um, you did another <clears throat> one more record, but it was just you, and Hazel went off and did her own thing, and... The last record was Ladies of the Eighties. Uh, Sukiyaki, Price is Sweet was Hazel and I. Ladies of the Eighties was Hazel and I. And Hazel quit in 1973 to go off and do her production and do the stuff that she wanted to do before. 83. Yeah, she quit yeah. in 83. Uh-huh. So to go on and do it. Because, you know, at that time, Taste of Honey wasn't making any money. They owed me, I don't know, 70000 back then, probably owed her 20,000 just from being on the road and having to pay for DMs and stuff when the gigs fall through. Do so you take the whole band and fly home? Is it cheaper to fly the whole band home and then go back or is it cheaper to stay there and just pay the hotel? So, you know, a lot of times it was just, it's not a good time for a taste of honey. So it was, it was more stressed than, than it was worth it. it at, at that point, it, we weren't having a lot of fun. Music was more, more political than anything. So. But you still had a top 10 R&B hit on that record. So had some, you yeah. would think, some momentum still going into uh, the One Taste of Honey project, right? Well, I had a lot of momentum going into it. And as, as the what turned? As the tower turned. Now, when Hazel quit, I was actually trying to leave Capitol. My friend Gary Getzman, who is producers now with um, Tom Hanks and different stuff, he was a music producer at the time, working with the Talking Heads and some other people. He wanted me to go to Warner Brothers. I wanted to go to Warner Brothers. Capital wouldn't let me go. What was attractive? What was attractive to you about Warner's? It was fresh, and Gary, they wanted me. They were interested in me. Mm-hmm. They were asking, you know, and that's a good indication that maybe I should be looking at other things. I, you know, at Capital at this point, when Hazel quit, I mean, there was so much drama going on. There's a lot of personal stuff going on. It wasn't a very good time at all. Um, and so I, it would have been great to be out of there. But because I wasn't going to get let go, um, I, I didn't really have clear direction on what I wanted to do on my album, for one thing. It was, I was still getting dealing with the breakup and so forth uh, of the group. But Jim Mazza, who at the time was the president of Capitol Records, was really behind me. He wanted to release <clears throat> Love You Tonight. 
and he had all this promotion set up and all this stuff he was going to do. And he was going against the promotion men because they wanted something else. And lo and behold, guess what happened? Jim Miles was fired before my stuff came out, two weeks before my release. So uh, there was no one supporting me. Mm. So that's the way it happened. As the tower, what? Hmm. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, who, who's it going to be? I thought, you know, should have been a single, yeah. for example. Yeah, I, I like who it was going to be. I like that. And I also like giving it up for love, if I remember correctly. Giving it up and love me tonight. But, it, you know, I didn't have a lot of direction. Uh, I was just putting the songs out at the time. But now I would approach it a little bit differently. When you mentioned, yeah. Warner, you mentioned Warner Brothers, Janice, and to me, a, a track like Baby Sister had some like Prince Minneapolis kind of influence at that point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that's where... Warner Brothers would have better would I think they would have had a better chance with promoting those type of songs because the capital just didn't they didn't do anything. That's it. You live and you die there. So how disillusioned were you at that point? You know, at that point, it's hard to say because in my mind, you know, Boogie wasn't old enough to be a classic. So it's not like a lot of royalties were coming in at that time. I was off on trying to figure out what I'm going to do to survive. Because <laughs> Taste of Honey owed me a lot of money from that time period. You know, the people aren't paying rent at my house and leasing it out. Okay, I got to make some changes over here. I mean, there's too much stuff going on in the real world, not the music world, to worry about other than just survival. So I had gone into another mode because, like I mentioned, I do more than just music. I'm also a copyright, patent, trademark paralegal. So I went and got a job at Stinsley Horn Libbits and Gibbets in Century City. And while I'm doing my creative stuff, I have to send you some other pictures. You know, like I mentioned, I did the creative um, merchandise for Taste of Honey Records. But I also have a toy collection that was out. So, and while I'm designing clothes, I said, well, how can I make some cash? I need cash. I don't want to wake every two weeks to get some money. And I went to a concert and I saw this girl in the back of the limo. I said, what are you doing back there, girl? She said, I'm making jewelry while these people pay me to wait. I said, that's it. That's it. I was driving a limo. So I went out that Monday. And I was set, went out that Monday. I looked up the places in Encino where I was living. I said, okay, there's, there's a place I can go. Okay. So I went in there and I said, the guy, I want to drive a limo. You got a job for me? And he said, well, have you ever driven a limo before? I said, no, but I've driven, I've driven a tour bus. And there's nothing that I can't do. And I believe that. So I think this my confidence. There's nothing that I can't do. Limo's easy peasy. I know how to treat people in the back of it for sure, right? So, and I, that was Monday. I didn't hear anything back from him. Fr Thursday night or Friday morning, I get a message on my answering service. You know, back in the days, guys, there's a little tape thing. You push play and you hear your messages. So I push play and there's a guy from the limo company. He said, okay, you're booked this Friday. There's a wedding out in uh, Agora keys are under the visor that's all the instructions i get okay so i got to, went down there got in the limo drove the little stretch limo down there picked up my people i got great tips but here's something you don't know and they don't know i drove some members of the sos thing i was incognito they didn't know it <laughs> they were playing i think it was long beach and there was some concert and 
when it was time for them to get out of there, there was a, uh, maybe it was their management. There was a police car because it was just crowded. You couldn't get out. I, I got right up on the bumper of this police car. They were trying to get, here's this little, trying to get out of there. I don't know where they were going in the police once I got there. They just did like this. What are you doing? I said, I'm out. But yeah, I drove a limo and I made, uh, I, drove, I drove a limo maybe about nine months. So I let the limo go, but I didn't let the limo go just for that. I let the limo go because I almost went to jail for robbing a bank shortly the next weekend. <laughs> That's a whole nother story. <laughs> <laughs> By the way. I didn't rob the bank. I switched it, took these people on this long, they had 24. I used to like the long run. Work one day out of the week. I got cash. I can do all my creative stuff. So uh, this people wanted this long run, little young folks, and I couldn't take it. After I was been on since nine in the morning, I was going to be on till nine at night. I called about nine in the morning for relief. Another limo driver came out on Saturday morning. So I used to drive a white stretch. He drove a stretch Cadillac. They wanted my white car. I said, okay, no problem. Keep the car. I take the Cadillac back to the office. Go home. I go to sleep. I wake up about, I don't know what time, it was six o'clock in the evening when I turn the news on and I'm seeing a police chase on the 405 with a white stretch limo being chased by a police, the police, the highway patrol, whatever, had a long line of folks. They had robbed the bank on Wilshire, Saturday on Wilshire, right near where I dropped, where we switched cars, right? It was my limo driver. That could have been me. They put a gun to his head and said, drive. They went into the bank, came out, put the gun to his head and said, drive. He stayed in jail till the, vac- till the owners got back from vacation in, in Mexico. They couldn't confirm. Wow. <laughs> That's some drama. High drama. <laughs> <laughs> I was through with that. I'm through with that. Okay, I don't think I like this little stuff, but I got cash. That was good. Don't tell the IRS. They didn't hear that, right? <laughs> <laughs> It was cool. It was great. So uh, you came back with that record in 1999. Um, did you do any performing? You know, before? actually, yes. Um, the record, um, uh, "Hiatus of the Heart." Is that the one you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah, I performed. I performed mainly uh, locally. I performed at uh, MI Music Studio. In my um, music institute in Hollywood, I did a, a show there and I did some um, classes there for some of the bass players. And we did, you know, uh, casinos, Mississippi, and I was able to perform some of the songs. But mainly people want to hear the Taste of Honey stuff. So I'd sneak in, depending on how long the show is, if the show is long enough, then I can sneak in some other stuff. If it's 15 minutes, I have to do Boogie Sukiyaki and Rescue Me. I can't do 15 minutes and don't do boogie, don't do sukiyaki, don't do rest of me. You know, people want to, that's what they're there for. So if it's a long enough show, then I said, okay, now you heard what you want. I'm going to play something. I'm going to explain something else to you. Um, so, but that album in, in 99, what, what inspired you to finally actually, you know, go ahead and, and put another record out? It had been time. You know, I had taken time off um, from music because at this point it's like, okay, Am I going to get married and have children? What am I doing here? Am I just going to be out on this road the whole time? So I decided to take time off long enough to find me someone to love, someone to love me. And I did that. And that hiatus of the heart was like therapy for me because the, the song that inspired the whole album is, of course, the song Hiatus of the Heart. Hiatus of the Heart 
was written after I lost two babies. I delivered two stillborn babies. And music is like, whew. Excuse me. Music okay. is like. Healing. Cathartic. It was my therapy. No, I just had to pull myself together. It was my therapy for that situation that had happened with the two babies. So in 1999, I delivered my wonderful son, John Paul, that was just speaking in here to tell me my next appointment is here already. But <laughs> he uh, uh, was really, that song was inspired by life experiences. And then I just wanted to keep on going. We kept writing more songs and more songs. So that's what that was. Well, it's a nicely produced record, um, and uh, if people haven't heard it, you know, like uh, "Let Love Rain Down," you got some world and reggae, well, world influences on, on that one, and elsewhere on the record, you have some reggae influences. And um, matter of fact, um, it's, a, it's a nice dance track. Um, you know, it's interesting. Matter of fact, is a song that Lionel was going to record on his record. We recorded the whole thing in the key of G form. We did everything but the vocal. They're like, what? He said, I want you to play every bass part on there. I had to actually write the music out because on the demo, there's a lot of bass on there. And I don't know. We're just playing and just, oh, punch me in. So I had to solo all the bass parts, write a chart out. I hadn't written the chart out since high school. I mean, since college. But he just didn't do the vocal. That was his first solo album after the group, not after his hiatus. That album didn't do too well for him because he probably needed Matter of Fact on it and Let Love and um, Let Love Rain Down. Now, Let Love Rain Down was actually written, I think maybe uh, 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 when did we go have the first Desert Storm? That was written back then. Because mm -hmm. I was politically speaking, I said, can we do more love, guys? And everybody's talking about tomorrow. Can we love each other today? Not tomorrow. Don't look to tomorrow. The children are depending on us to get this right. And what are we doing? That's why the other song, Love is the Only Thing That Matters. Please, once you think about the children, they look for us to lead the way. Blah, 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 and so forth. But, Oh, I had a good time doing that album. And I'm actually working with David Cochran on that album. Now, David Cochran is the, from the Commodore camp. He's from Tuskegee, Alabama. I met him when he was 17, working with the Commodores. I was, what, 24 at the time. Um, he was the guitar player, the sax player. When, when um, um, the guy would go downstairs to sing, go down front and sing Brick House, he was the drummer. When Lionel Richie lost his voice, he was Lionel Richie singing <laughs> three times later. When Lionel Richie quit and they still had two more shows to do, he was Lionel Richie. <laughs> so oh, we've been working together. MVP. For, yes, indeed. Long time. So it's all good. What, what was it like uh, singing on Lionel Richie's records? Oh, it was like being home. You know, we used to hang out at the house singing, messing around. So when it's time, I think I may have just been passing through that day. David worked with them all the time. David has quite a few songs on Lionel's solo projects, Commodore projects. And he said, we need some background. Chad, get in there and sing. I said, okay. That's pretty much how that happened. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. You know, so that's pretty much how that happened. <laughs> I'm guessing out. you're probably going to say no, but still, um, are you surprised that Lionel took off to such a superstar level when he went solo? No, no, 
He should have done that. I was speaking with Lionel that whole time, trying to decide whether he's going to go solo. Lionel and I are good friends. And Benny, Benny, his um, Ash, Ash, Benny Ashford, it's his manager's name, Benny, whatever. He was calling me, can you talk to Lionel? Can you try to convince him to stay in the group? Can you do that? I said, Lionel, these people are calling me up. I said, but you know what? I, I actually was part of the, one of the ones encouraging him to leave because there was a lot of drama going on in the industry as a whole, but it was his time to shine. You know, everybody's not going to shine in the group. And Lionel was working with Diana Ross. He had some issues going on with the Commodores, with their publishing and songs, Kenny, you know, songs and the Commodores too, yeah. were split. Songs and the Commodores were split seven ways. Benny Ashburn, the manager, and the six in the band, they all got a piece of that. And I'm pretty sure Lionel must have got tired of that. But then he did uh, Donna Ross. And what did one you just mentioned? Kenny Rogers. Kenny Rogers, lady. That song was presented for the Commodores. They didn't want it. Hmm. So at some point, I mean, your group can actually hold you back. And that's actually what I was thinking. You know, so when Benny's asking me, well, can you talk to Lionel about staying? I said, it's his time to shine. Why would you want me to ask him to stay? He's not going to listen to me anyway. If I'm going to encourage him to do anything, it's going to shine. Now is your time to shine. So just try to be respectful when you make your move. You know, because at what point do you just stay there? when you've got room to grow and it's your turn to, you do not deserve to grow. I think you do. So no, I wasn't surprised. In fact, I was not surprised at all. We'll say that he made that move. It was his time. He needed to. As far as a taste of honey goes, what track are you most proud of? Mm, I'd say Sukiyaki. I'd say Sukiyaki. That's um, that's the one I think it caught a lot of people off guard, and it touched a lot of souls. It touched a lot of people. I don't know if "proud" is the word. That's one of my favorite songs. I mean, the one I'm most proud of. I'm just proud that we even got to the point where we did, where it blessed enough to get stuff out and about. Whether we had super stardom or just minimum, I'm thankful for the stardom and the fame that we've had. You know, it's like food to our souls. And uh, if you had to tell somebody. Hey, you may have missed this song in the catalog of A Taste of Honey. Go back and check it out because people missed it. What, yeah, what track might say, that be? I would say, I love you, for one. Never go wrong. Those two. You may have missed that. Yeah. And then, I don't know if they missed Distant, because I think it was the second song coming up on the album. Midnight Stack in the Sack. They missed that one completely. <laughs> well, part of the reason they missed is because the record companies missed them, is I think part yeah. of it. And um, so what what are you working on now? What 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 might we see in the near future? Um, you mentioned your, your son being musical. So share some of that with us. Yes, my son is an incredible artist. I mean, he's taken the talent that I've given him to the next generation. He's a singer, songwriter, producer, multi-instrumentalist. He plays instrumentalist. He plays bass, drums, guitar. He plays everything on everything, sings, arranges. I mean, he's incredible. If you go to Jean Placide, dot -E com, you'll see I'm not just promoting my son. You see that I'm speaking the truth because if he wasn't that good, I wouldn't be telling you about him, right? 
I wouldn't say anything. <laughs> so um, I, of course, am working on new music, looking forward to get out, getting it out soon. I've got a few companies asking me for stuff, so I'm working that together. Expect to hear something this year, before the, before the end of this year. Definitely working on new music. I am so excited. It's just hard. It takes longer to get some of the things done because some of the people that I wanted to work with through the pandemic, they got day jobs now. So, okay, what time do you get off of work? <laughs> I'll try to get you out of your day again. Come on by. <laughs> the latest track. So, definitely new music. And, you know, I don't know if you can see this, but I've been doing jewelry yeah. through the pandemic. You know, like I say, history is more than just music. I've been involved in um, toys, merchandise, different stuff. So, at the music to your ears dot co m-u-s-i-c-t-o-y-o-u-r-s dot co c-o you'll see that you go to taste of honey uh com. uh i'm putting a new store together which is shop a taste of honey and that's because i you know my the music to your ears it's got the jewelry it's got you see that yeah bracelets and you know it's got all kind of stuff like that but people say can i get some t-shirts can i get some cds and records i said okay i'll put that story together for you so i'm in the process of putting that together hopefully it'll be together before the time life ultimate disco cruise which is coming up uh next month so yeah just, so you is know, just staying is that, busy is that more of an isolated uh appearance or are you doing you think multiple appearances uh coming up I'm doing, uh, we just came back from New York and New York was the first gig I've been on since the pandemic. The last gig I did with the first ladies of disco, uh, uh, Norma Jean and I sang Boogie together, you know, and Marsha Wash and, and a few other people on the show. That was so great. But the last one, we talked about that for a long time because we didn't have another show to talk about it. We've been dormant the whole 2020, right? So we had I performed for a Christmas party back in New York on the 17th of December. It was fantastic. They were starving for entertainment as much as I was starving for the food my soul that they give us. So it was, I mean, we were talking about party hardy. We partied. I even was out with my bass dancing with the audience. This was great. Uh, so we've got the gig coming up with Time Life Disco Cruise, uh, February 26th through the 3rd, I think it is. And some things for July, summertime stuff. Stuff is starting to come in. Everybody's trying to see what's going on with this darn pandemic. You mentioned a book uh, in our conversation. Uh, what's the situation there? Are you going to, is something formulating? Oh, no, it's just one. I'm, I'm working on a book. Of course, we're working on a book. My story is so phenomenal. I mean, from childhood on up, you wouldn't believe the story. And if you notice, I don't talk a lot about my early childhood. So there's a reason for that. There's a reason I'm creative. So, yes, I'm working on a book. I've had people ask me that. A couple of people, uh, producers, wanted to write a, uh, uh, a movie, a series, blah, blah, blah. But the synopsis is that you said, well, maybe you should do the book first because there's so many different things you have to pull from this experience. Just particularly like with, with uh, Aretha Franklin, they can't tell her whole story. So you pull from whatever that weekend was or you, you let them know that month what happened. So I'm working on that, mm -hmm. but mainly I'm working on some new music. Well, I have some music for you. If you get a chance, you know, you mentioned Let Love Bring Down. I wish, I'm going to re-release that album. I'm going to re-release that properly. There's some people pulling stuff off because that was missed, and it's needed now. Back in 1999, they were too busy calling each other's woman bitches and hoes and all that stuff. They didn't want to hear anything about love and man's inhumanity to man. We got to stop that. Everybody come together, love each other. They don't want to hear that. 
Now we need it. But in 2011, in the UK, Sing uh, for Water, which is a uh, nonprofit organization that puts water in third world countries, um, they heard it. They, they had, I think it was like 1,100 people singing my song. I was shocked. I was just searching the internet and I put Let Love Rain Down. There's this big, huge choir in England singing Let Love Rain Down. It's like, wow, some people do know it. Okay. So when you mentioned that song, it made me think of that. But yeah, yeah. I'm going to, uh, I've got some great new stuff. It's just getting it out there. I've got some people interested, which is good. Because, you know, what, where's, what, what's our avenue? What, what audience are we going? I'm not just going for the old folks. We've, mm. we've already, we've, we know. I need to catch some of these young, younger people. Yeah. Get them to come together. So my, my, my son, only request, my only request is to make sure you have a mix of up tempo and slow stuff. Don't go no, all slow. Do. You know. Oh no, 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 yeah. no. We never do just one thing because I'm not a dance band, right? I'm a lover. I'm a romantic. So I'm going to give you the stuff to dance with. But I'm going to give you something to make love to, also, yeah, and maybe a little cha cha for my old folks. We'll do some cha cha music. Some of that in between. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah. Hey, I appreciate so much you sharing all this with us, Janet. And uh, oh, it's my been pleasure. a lot of fun. And congratulations on where you are today and, and um, creating so much great music and, and great memories for so many people. Thank you so much. Appreciate you having me here. And when I'm in North Carolina, I'm going to look you up. All right, all right beautiful. Take care. Okay. okay. Take care. Bye, Janet. Bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Truth and Rhythm. A big thank you goes out to our guest as well as to you, the viewer and listener. Also, much gratitude to Pleasure for supplying the show's funky opening and closing music. As a reminder, you can always access the complete list of linked shows by episode at funkinstuff.net. I urge you to support this program and receive the extra benefits along with that by subscribing to the Funk and Stuff channel on YouTube and sharing it with funk, R&B, and jazz lovers, joining Truth and Rhythm's membership program at Patreon, submitting a donation at funkandstuff.net, buying Everything is on the One, the first guide to funk book at Amazon, shopping at the Funky Things store for cool merchandise at funkandstuff.net, and linking through funkandstuff.net for all of your Amazon purchases. In addition, if you're an artist or anyone seeking proven, results-oriented, professional marketing, PR, writing, or editing consultation or production, check out the media services section at funkinstuff.net. Also, I encourage you to drop me a line at scottg at funkinstuff.net. I love the feedback, suggestions, guest requests, appearance and sponsorship inquiries, and just talking about my favorite subject, groove-based music. For now, and as always, this is Scott Dr. GX Goldfine saying, keep on keep vibing on to the rhythm of the one.